Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to a very festive instalment of History Hack. I've got Charlie with me today. Hello, Charlie. Hello, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. We're not really here on Christmas, are we? We're, not that <laughs> We're working on Christmas. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be dragging an author on on Christmas morning either. But <laughs> this is very Christmassy. Tell us who we've got with us and why. I'm really excited about this one. We have got Lucinda Hawksley with us. She's an author, broadcaster and public speaker who's written nearly two dozen books. Now, when I explain who who she is, this uh, being so prolific won't come as a surprise to you. Her latest book is all about Dickens and Christmas. And in case this isn't impressive enough, she also happens to be the great, great, great granddaughter of the man himself. Hello, Lucinda. Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me on. We're going to talk about Charles Dickens himself and we're going to talk about Christmas. And I love what you've done with this book. So we're not only looking at his influence on Christmas, are we, but actually his experience of it as well. I love the way that the book sort of merged those two together. So I guess let's start at the beginning with his first Christmases. He wrote about them later on, didn't he? Yes, he did. So Charles Dickens was a journalist before he became well known as an author of fiction and throughout his life he continued to write journalism so quite early on when he was making his first forays into fiction he wrote a couple of articles called one called Christmas Festivities and then he also wrote about Christmas in Pickwick Papers and in a lot of his Christmas writing he actually looked back to the Georgian Christmas which of course was the Christmas of when he was growing up Mm. Uh, when he was born in 1812 King George III was on the throne. The Prince Regent was kind of taking power when his, you know, when his father wasn't well. And Dickens grew up in this Regency Georgian England and remained a Georgian and a Regency dandy, really, until Queen Victoria came to the throne when he was 25. So when we look at Fezziwig's Ball, for example, in A Christmas Carol, that's looking back to when Ebenezer Scrooge was a young man. And that is the Georgian Christmas that perhaps Dickens' parents and grandparents had told him about. Gosh. So he was really keen on making Christmas memorable for his children, I understand. Is that right? Is this a legacy of his his own experienced experiences when he was younger, which were quite impoverished? I think so, yes. Christmas was always very important in the Dickens family from what we've seen. So even when they were really at their kind of most struggling, they always did celebrate Christmas. And in the Dickens family, music was a huge part of Christmas. So Charles's older sister, Frances, Fanny, she was a music student at the Royal Academy of Music. So in fact, when the family went through their worst time, which was when the father, John Dickens, was arrested for debt, and he and his wife, Elizabeth, and all the younger children went into the Marshalsea debtor's prison, and Charles Dickens himself went to work in a factory at the age of 12, his older sister, Frances, stayed at music school. And it was believed that she would be the one to make the family's fortune and save them all in later life by her prowess as a musician. And so every year when they had a Christmas party, Christmas was very, sorry, every year when they had a Christmas party, music was very important. 
And um, one year there's a letter sent by a young Charles Dickens to a friend postponing the date of a Christmas party because they've just moved house and the piano won't have been delivered on time. <laughs> and in Dickens's view, you couldn't have a Christmas party without a piano. So I think that shows us what his childhood Christmases were like. His very early Christmas, um, just before his second birthday, was quite interesting to me because although we, we can't prove that whether the Dickens family visited or not, they were living in Kent at that time, just outside London. And the winter of 1813 to 1814 was incredibly cold. And it was when the very last frost fair was held, when the River Thames froze over oh. completely and a fair was held on the river. And I actually found um, a write-up about it on Charles Dickens's second birthday. Of course, nobody was marking Charles Dickens's second <laughs> birthday outside of his family, but I thought it was rather wonderful to find this newspaper report about the gambling and the animals being roasted on spits in the middle of a frozen river, which sounds a bit crazy, um, and all these things that were happening. So people traveled from all around London to visit this spectacle, something that was more used to have happened in Elizabethan England. So this was seen as a really major thing. So perhaps, who knows, maybe even little Charles may have been taken by his parents. Charlie's buzzing at the idea of the frost fairs because uh, Lucinda won't know that Charlie is a early modern Stuart historian. So obviously there's lots and lots of Charles II stories. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it just sounds magical, doesn't it? And highly dangerous. Oh, terrifying. I mean, the idea of sitting next to a fire and warming yourself in the middle of a frozen river seems absolutely insane to me. I'm there for it. <laughs> Wonderful. Right. You've already mentioned the Pickwick Papers. Um, this is so the earliest of his Christmas stories appears in 1836-37, doesn't it? So tell us about the Christmas stories. So this is the first one, but this becomes an annual thing. Why? Um, and how does he start? How does he approach it in the beginning? Well, in the Pickwick Papers, this is a club of gentlemen who get together or travel around and they tell each other stories. And when they meet people on their travels, they often share stories. So on Christmas Eve, uh, they are gathered around the fire together and Mr. Wardle tells a Christmas story of the goblins who stole a sexton. And the sexton, a church worker, is a very grumpy man called Gabriel Grubb. Dickens was wonderful at these names. And he's basically somebody who needs to change his ways. So through this kind of supernatural interactions with goblins, they show him what a terrible man he's been and, and just how mean he is to everybody and how he's got to stop hating Christmas. And at the end, of course, he decides that he's going to be a changed man. But unlike Ebenezer Scrooge, who becomes changed in A Christmas Carol and stays within his community, making it better, Gabriel Grubb realises he's been so awful that he actually has to leave because no one's ever going to believe that he's changed. And he has to go and start a new life somewhere else where nobody knows how awful and grumpy he was beforehand. Gosh, that's, that's harsh. <laughs> <laughs> he's so grumpy he has to move away and start a whole new life <laughs> I think we we know a few people like that here at, at History Hack um you're in in your book you've written about Dickens influences as far as his Christmas writing is concerned tell us a little bit about Washington Irving Washington Irving the American writer who's probably most famous today for the legend of Sleepy Hollow was someone who Dickens was hugely influenced by. So as a little boy, he used to read voraciously. And one of the things that he loved was a story called The Keeping of Christmas at Bracebridge Hall. Now, Bracebridge Hall was based on a Jacobean mansion that Washington Irving had seen when he was visiting his sister, who lived in the Midlands in England, just not far from Birmingham. And he named it in his books, Bracebridge Hall, and he wrote several stories about it. But this particular one is about you know, a snowy Christmas and travellers needing to take up hospitality when they're lost on the road. And it was all about how the traditions of Christmas are being forgotten in both Britain and America. And this was something that was really a concern to people in the early 19th century. So throughout the 1830s and 1840s, when Charles Dickens was growing up and beginning his writing career, people really felt that Christmas had lost its meaning. It had become too commercial, which might seem crazy today, but that was how people felt at the time. And it had forgotten its original purpose, which was to do with helping the poor. 
So the very first Christmas card, which would be published and sold commercially in 1843, purely by coincidence, the same year as A Christmas Carol was published, as well as showing a happy family sitting around drinking together, it also had an image on either side of poor people being given clothing and food. So it was about charity, and that was what was felt to be lacking. So when Charles Dickens read The Keeping of Christmas at Bracebridge Hall, who knows, perhaps it stayed in his mind and influenced his Christmas writings, such as the Pickwick Papers story. However, his publishers weren't keen on the idea of a Christmas story. So it wasn't that this was something that was considered a commercial thing to do at the time. In fact, when Charles Dickens came up with the idea of doing his first Christmas novella, which was A Christmas Carol in 1843, his publishers thought it was such a bad idea that they didn't actually agree to pay for all the costs. So Dickens had to pay part of them, which means he essentially partially self-published A Christmas Carol because his publishers had no confidence that a story about Christmas would be popular. <laughs> publishers getting it wrong? Never! No! Um, no! <laughs> we're starting to talk about Christmas as we know it. Obviously, we, we had a look, didn't we, briefly at Georgian Christmases that he experienced. So, I mean, if we're putting it back to one single person, really, Prince Albert coming over and his young family being born is what really kickstart the Christmas that we all know, because he brings all of this German tradition with him, doesn't he? And this shift happens in Charles Dickens's lifetime. And it also is exacerbated by things like a Christmas carol as well. I think they're both like culpable really <laughs> for Christmas in terms of how we know it. The tree in the house is them, isn't it? Um, and things like that. So how did Christmas change in Charles Dickens eyes between when he was small and when all of this starts coming in and he starts to write his Christmas stories. So the trees coming in the house is a big thing, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so that doesn't happen until 1848, so mm. five years after A Christmas Carol. Um, it's quite interesting because 1843, when A Christmas Carol was published, was purely by coincidence the year of also the first commercial Christmas card, created by a very busy civil servant, Henry Cole, who just didn't have time to write all his Christmas letters. So he commissioned an artist friend to produce a picture, he turned it into a Christmas card, he had it printed and he sold those that he didn't use. It wasn't a successful commercial commercial venture the first year. Um, it was considered too expensive, but very quickly the idea of the Christmas card took off. Now the Christmas tree was waiting in the wings. So this had been actually in Britain for a long time, but pretty much exclusively within the royal family and the court and the kind of upper echelons of aristocratic society. And this is because the royal family for many years had been German. So when the Georges arrived from Germany, they brought with them the Germanic Christmas traditions of the Christmas tree and decorating the Christmas tree and keeping it within the house. But this was something that Prince Albert then kind of released to the public. So in 1848, the Illustrated London News, which was a really important newspaper and it was kind of sent out to all over the world as well, was it produced an image, an illustration of the royal family around a decorated Christmas tree inside their home. And also Prince Albert had requested that a Christmas tree outside in the yard in Windsor Castle be decorated so that people walking past could see it. This coincidentally was the year, 1848, when the Illustrated London News article appeared that Charles Dickens wrote his final Christmas novella, The Haunted Man. So his five Christmas books are topped and tailed by these other traditions of the Christmas card and the Christmas tree really coming into being. Other things were also happening. The Christmas cracker, which isn't kind of mentioned in Dickens, also came in in the 19th century. Um, a, a London um, confectioner and baker, he'd been to France and he'd bought sweets that made a kind of crackling sound with the paper. And so he brought back the idea of the Christmas cracker and, and, and kind of started it up in London to have a Christmas confection that made that cracking noise when you pulled it open. And of course, Christmas foods, which had been varying over, over the centuries, really started to come into their own because of Charles Dickens writing in A Christmas Carol with the visitation of the ghost of Christmas present about the many different types of Christmas foods that were there in a wealthy person's household. And of course, in the Cratchit family's Christmas lunch in A Christmas Carol, we also hear about the poorer people trying desperately to eke out the food that they have. The 12th cake was actually the big thing then, which was the cake for 12th night 
elaborately decorated. There would be huge competitions and articles all through kind of Georgian and Victorian England in the newspapers. Talk of confectioners with their most elaborate confections of 12th cakes on display in their windows. And this later would then become the Christmas cake. And there's famously a recipe for a Christmas cake in Mrs. Beaton's book of household management in the 1860s. So all of these things started to evolve if they were there already or to come into family life and Christmas life in Charles Dickens's lifetime, spearheaded by the fact that A Christmas Carol was the most phenomenal success. So instantly after 1843, the Christmas story became the thing that every publisher wanted and every writer wanted to write. It was an immediate success and Charles Dickens actually changed publishers because Chapman and Hall, his original publishers, hadn't had confidence in A Christmas Carol and he moved to new publishers, Bradbury and Evans. And from then on, the Christmas story with which he was so personified just took off. I wonder how many heads rolled at the original publisher. <laughs> like all those people who turned down Harry Potter before Bloomsbury finally took it on. Well, 11 <laughs> publishers did, didn't they? They were like, what is this nonsense? Yeah. We don't need this in our I've heard, I'd heard 30, but I guess the story grows in the telling. I have no idea, but I know it was a lot. <laughs> I, I love, though, that this man gave us Christmas as we know it, in part, and he's already had enough of it by 1848. He's like, yeah, I'm done with this now. This is just getting too much. Um, but what's interesting for me as well is this little burst of Christmas novellas and his big love affair with writing about Christmas does coincide with him becoming a family man as well, doesn't it? Uh, Charles and Catherine Dickens married in 1836 and their first child was born in 1837 and they would go on to have 10 children within a 15 year period and poor Catherine also had at least two miscarriages within those 15 years. So Leave her alone Charles, just give her a break. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Uh, you read about Victorian families having 18 children and you think, my goodness, there's poor Well, I women. just feel bad for you two generations on or three generations on. How many Christmas cards do you have to write? Actually, <laughs> <laughs> it's five generations on and we're actually wow. OK because um, Charles and Catherine's children, only two of them have descendants that we know of living today. Okay. The others either didn't have children or their children didn't have children. Mm -hmm. But there's still enough of us. Imagine yeah. how many there would be. It would be like Queen Victoria repopulated <laughs> Europe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> By the time that A Christmas Carol was published, um, Dickens was a father of an ever-growing family and he was actually struggling financially. In fact, the year after he completed A Christmas Carol, before the royalties really started to come in, he was so worried about money that he rented out his home in London and took his family off to live in Italy for a year because it was so much cheaper to live in Italy. So he could actually afford to rent the wing of a palazzo in Italy and live in great style and still have money coming in from the rent on his home in London. And it was when he was living in Italy that he wrote his second Christmas book, The Chimes. Nothing changes, does it? I mean, that sounds probably, you could probably do that. If you've got a flat in London now, you could probably afford to rent a palazzo in, uh, in Italy on that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish. I might try it. <laughs> Fancy a year in Italy. Of course. Now, look, because we're, we're, we're talking about about Dickens I feel like we we need to sort of go to the dark side a little bit because you know when we read read his tales it's always got a little edge of this not every Christmas was happy though was it no and um, as you said earlier Alex he was finding the Christmas commercialism the fact that he was expected to write a book every year really exhausting so he actually took a break in 1847 there wasn't a Christmas book that year he'd found the previous one the battle of life which had come out in 1846 to be a serious battle he'd had writer's block he'd been struggling with depression which was something that Dickens struggled with a great deal and in 1848 that was the final Christmas novella so there were five in total after which he began writing Christmas short stories and encouraging other writers to do the same. And when he set up his own magazines, Household Words, then later followed by All the Year Round, he encouraged other writers and commissioned writers to create stories for a kind of bumper Christmas edition. But he would even say in his commissioning that they did not have to be seasonal in any way um, because he was kind of getting a bit fed up with it. Now, he was also finding that his work was being taken over completely by preparations for Christmas. So some years he'd start preparing for Christmas and the Christmas market in March. And he just found himself becoming increasingly unhappy about it. He'd be racing all around the country to do Christmas readings and barely spending any time with his family. And then in 1858, 
he separated very publicly from his wife, Catherine. And it was a huge story that echoed all around the UK and overseas. And poor Catherine was given a lot of grief because people were so enamoured of Charles Dickens. They couldn't believe that he'd done anything wrong. So they had to make Catherine the problem rather than just understanding that this was a marriage that had broken down, that he'd stopped being in love with her, he'd actually met somebody else. There had to be something wrong with her. She had to be an alcoholic. She had to be, uh, she had to be a terrible person. None of this was true at all. But of course, that began a series of very different Christmases. However, Dickens was always desperate to be with his children over Christmas. And when the marriage ended, by the way, um, the children were legally his property. That was the law at the time. People often say, oh, you know, so terrible how he kept the children. Catherine had no rights over her children. Even little Edward, who was still very young, uh, the youngest child, um, when they separated. However, um, that was just the law. Women had no rights at that time over the children they'd given birth to. Now, one of Dickens's worst Christmases and I'm sorry for any American listeners, was the year of 1867 to 68, when he spent five months that winter in America. It was his second trip to the States and people there adored him. He made a lot of money, which is why he went. He went out, he performed all these kind of Christmas readings um, and non-Christmas readings. He was there for several months and he was totally miserable. He'd had to leave his children at home and he'd had to leave his girlfriend, Ellen Turnan, behind. He'd really wanted to take her, but was advised not to. And he was insistent that once he got to America, he'd be able to send for her, pass her off as his goddaughter, seeing as she was the same age as his younger daughter, Katie. Um, and when he got there, he realized that just wasn't going to happen. So he was incredibly lonely, traveling with a friend who was his manager. Um, and all his letters seemed to write about him being in a, a really bad mood. And in fact, his manager's letters seemed to be slightly kind of forbearing the fact that Charles Dickens was being a total pain on that trip. So the Christmas afterwards, the Christmas of 1868, after returning from America, he was determined was going to be really happy and he was going to spend the full 12 days of Christmas from the 24th of December to the 6th of January at home with his family having a really amazing Christmas. And then the following year, 1869, was, although he didn't know it, his very last Christmas because he died very young at the age of 58. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. We talked about him as a man and Christmas for him. You've mentioned this one. It's the big one um, a few times already. So let's talk about it. 1843 is the big year, A Christmas Carol. You've already told us the publishers had no faith that it was actually going to be any good or received well. Uh, how, and he wrote it in six weeks. I mean, it's big. He wrote it in six weeks and it's a complex story as well. So how does it come about? And, and what are his, uh, we mentioned that we think his inspirations went back to Washington Irving, uh, but, but how does it happen? It's a really amazing story actually. And this all comes about from his desperate need to change society and make people aware of particularly child poverty, but poverty in general. So at this time, Charles Dickens was doing well he was the author of books that have been well received, Oliver Twist, Pickwick Papers, Nicholas Nickleby, The Old Curiosity Shop. But then he wrote a couple of books that didn't go down so well. This was his first travelogue, American Notes, which was after his journey to North America and Canada in 1842. And then Martin Chuzzlewit, which he was writing in 1843. Now, that was the first of Dickens's novels where the readership actually dwindled for a while. And his publishers were starting to think that maybe his star was on the descendant and people weren't really sure what to make of American notes. They didn't really understand travelogues. So his career was, was starting to feel a bit stagnant. And then he became friendly with a great campaigner, a man called Dr. Thomas Southwood Smith, who wanted to enlist his help because he knew that Charles Dickens was somebody who really cared about child poverty as had been shown in all of his stories so far, Nicholas Nickleby and Oliver Twist in particular, and Old Curiosity Shop with the death of Little Nell. And he had done a report for the government, which was published in what was known as the Blue Book, because it was in a blue wrapper, and he sent Charles Dickens the report. 
And when Dickens read Southwood Smith's book, he said it made him weep. And he contacted Dr. Thomas Southwood Smith and said that he would be very happy to help him. And initially the idea was that Charles Dickens was going to write a report for the government based on the research that Southwood Smith had done. And then Charles Dickens went up to Manchester where his sister was living and where he was giving a talk for an educational charity. And he was horrified. Now he thought that he'd seen poverty in London, but in Manchester, in what was the start of the hungry forties, um, people were fleeing Ireland because of poverty and, and no food and arriving in Manchester and Liverpool. And whole families were also being displaced from their jobs by the early part of the industrial revolution where the machinery had started to come in and take over people's jobs. So suddenly, there were incredible amounts of homeless people, whole families just living on the streets and dying on the streets. And Dickens was so appalled that he, on his way back from Manchester, said he was going to write a story that would strike a hammer blow in favour of the poor man's child. Now, this hammer blow would not have worked if he'd done it as a government report, because he thought, well, who's going to read this? A couple of MPs, you put away, no one will ever refer to it again. So he turned it into the idea of a fictional book a novella much shorter than his other books and it was going to be around Christmas and he just came up with the idea and wrote the whole thing in six weeks. It was phenomenal and I think the reason that it stood the test of time that people still read A Christmas Carol, there are numerous adaptations and every year there seems to be another adaptation. I've seen um, flyers for a Klingon Christmas Carol. There's been a <laughs> the Muppets, it's the Muppets. Muppet Christmas Carol which just sticks really closely to the original text. It does, yeah, it's dark isn't it? It's really like dark and, and, it, and the Disney one as well which I you know, it was a bit dubious about and it was really good. It really captured all the elements and at the heart of this and it frustrates me when some adaptations take this out. The heart of this are the two children, Ignorance and Want, who are there with the ghost of Christmas present. When the ghost is fading away and Scrooge says, well, who are these children? And the ghost says, these are mankind's children. The boy is Ignorance and the girl is Want. Beware them both, especially the boy. And this is not because he thought that boys were terrible and girls were good. It's because Ignorance, in his view, was the most dangerous thing. And if you left children to grow up, in deprivation, poverty and ignorance, they would become the angry, violent criminal adults of the future. So when he wrote A Christmas Carol, he wrote it from the heart and he was still working on his other things as well and having young children to help care for, though I think mostly that was done by the women and the servants. Um, but, you know, he was really passionate about trying to change things. And of course, what his readers didn't know was that he himself had been such a poor child. Mm. He had witnessed poverty firsthand and he had seen people in far worse situations than he was in. At least he had a job and a roof over his head, even if his family were in prison. So he wanted to highlight to all of his middle and upper class readers that they were all Ebenezer Scrooge, that they were part of the problem. But it wasn't just Scrooge who needed to change his behaviour, but every single one of those people who went to church every Sunday or on Christmas Day and then walked home ignoring starving people in the streets, all of them were part of society's problem. And that was the, the message at the very heart of A Christmas Carol. And it's the one that still has such resonance for today in our, in our time of food banks, you know, terrible food poverty. Uh, you know, we've got people campaigning. I mean, you know, Marcus Rashford campaigning about children needing meals at school. How we've got to this point in 2021, I don't know, but we're really starting to head back towards that time that Charles Dickens knew and that made him so passionate about writing A Christmas Carol. It was his kind of protest song moment. If he'd been around in the 60s, maybe he'd have been a folk singer, who knows? But he was getting that message across and it got across very effectively. God. It's completely radical. It's, and the fact that it's still a radical message today is, is insane. Um, but I feel like I need to take a little little bit of a sidebar because this is a room full of writers. He wrote this in six weeks. What about the editing? Did did he edit it or did it go to This is like that Sylvester Stallone doing Rocky in three days on Coffee and Pro Plus, isn't it? You're like, really? Or is this just like urban legend? I mean, first draft, fair play. Hmm. First, you know, but was it? Was it completely formed in six weeks or did he then? Very little editing. When you look at his manuscripts, there's very little. He'll go through and cross things out. But um, it was astonishing. He wrote it so fast and then it was printed so fast. And he just, Dickens could write thousands of words a day. He'd regularly write about 4,000 words a day. So, so really, he was quite able to do this. 
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. It sounds like it was just waiting to pour out of him anyway, like going back to even all the way to his own childhood and the poverty and stuff. He had stuff he wanted to say and it was literally just formatting it. Absolutely. And I think it just... As you'll know as well, you know, characters do form themselves. They do come up with things. He really just wanted to get the message across. When Scrooge talks about, you know, are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Is the poor law not still active? I I support all those things. Why should I give to charity at the beginning of the novel? And then at the end, those words come back to haunt him when he sees the poor children and says, have they no recourse? And the ghost says, are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? This was the attitude that Dickens had probably heard thousands of times throughout his life he was always involved in prison reform particularly women's prisons he felt very strongly that women ended up in prison because society and usually men put them there so men who left them with children to feed uh, men who got them into uh, selling you know kind of drugs or or, or stolen goods uh, men who got them to thieve for them so all of these things were, were very much seen to be the case. And Dickens would work with prison governors and try to help women when they came out of prison. Now, of course, most people did not know about his own intimate connection with the prison, that every day for seven or eight months, he was visiting a prison to see his parents and younger siblings in it. That's not something that he would have admitted at the time. Very few people knew. His wife knew. His children didn't know. Um, that's how close the secret it was, because then that would have worked against him. Now, of course, that would be your great publicity hook. Mm. You know, your publicist would go crazy with it. You know, you'd mm-hmm. be on every talk show going. But then in Victorian Britain, which was so harsh, he needed to keep that hidden. And it was a, sh- a shameful secret, sadly, to him. But what he wanted to do was stop other people going through that. It's insane. He did. He was also men who get women pregnant. Was he not one of the breaks he took were which we stopped talking about him and Christmas and we've moved on to the stories. He went off and, and oversaw all the planning and everything for opening a, a home for fallen women, didn't he? Yes, and actually he never called them fallen women. It's what it's yeah. become known as since, but he called them friendless women, um, okay. houseless women. So the, the words seem to be houseless, not homeless then. And he did quite a lot of work on what he called houselessness. If you uh, if you ever want to read his night walks, they're really wonderful kind of evocations of, of walking around London at night and looking at the houseless people there. But yes, in um, the 1840s, he set up with a good friend of his and Catherine's, Angela Burdett Coutts, who was a very good friend to have because she was the heiress to the Coutts banking fortune. And she was an amazing heiress because she didn't expect to inherit her grandfather's money. And when she did, she used it to really great effect. So she set up all sorts of housing charities. And one of the things that they did together was they set up a home called Urania Cottage in Shepherd's Bush, West London. And it's right near where the BBC studios used to be um, several decades ago. Anybody listening might remember when they used to say the BBC from Lime Grove Studios. And it was right there um, near what later became a film studios and then BBC studios. But then was just a kind of cottage in a, in a street that had been built on what had been countryside, but was now kind of the outskirts of London. And it was to house women who had in some way lost their position in society and to lose your role in Victorian Britain meant that you were unlikely to get another job. If it was known that you had had a baby out of wedlock, regardless of not whether you were raped or assaulted in any way, that didn't matter. That was your fault. You shouldn't have got pregnant. That was how it was seen. And um, you were then a woman whose reputation was ruined and you would never get another job, no matter how menial Um, you'd end up probably becoming a prostitute because if you didn't have a reference from another employer, a previous employer, then somebody wouldn't 
wouldn't take you on. So what Dickens did when, was give flyers to people that, that, to be handed out by prison governors to women leaving prison to say, if you need help, this is someone you can contact. And he and Angela Burdett Coote set up this home. There was a matron. Dickens went, he sorted out all the things like the utilities, you know, getting the gas and water put on. But he also went and bought material for the women to be able to make their own clothes. And he was adamant they shouldn't have a uniform. They should, it shouldn't be known to be, it wasn't expected to be a kind of reformatory or anything. It was a place they could go to, learn good skills that could help them get jobs in domestic service, perhaps, or overseas, which was the main plan so that women could go over to Canada or Australia. This was not transportation. This mm. was after Australia stopped being a penal colony. This was to go and make a new life in a country where you wouldn't be judged by your past actions. Oh, we have an episode on that. We have an episode from a while back about um, loads of really brave Victorian women who went, yeah, screw it. I'm going to go and start a new life in Australia. Because there were only men out there that they needed women to go out there. And it was a single women thing. Yeah, definitely. And it was really interesting how many people just went out when they were desperate. Dickens wrote one article about uh, later in, in life in the 1860s about watching people at the docks waiting to board the boats to Australia and how amazed he was by seeing them waiting for their passage to Australia and families who had absolutely nothing and would have starved if they'd stayed in Britain or Ireland and just heading out. And he was amazed by how brave they were. Gosh. Was it? immediately iconic it is now a christmas carol let's go back to a christmas carol um we we're obviously we only need to say the name and everyone knows everyone goes muppets or disney or but the publisher wasn't sure was it immediately an iconic piece did it Instantly. blow the world apart? So the first print run was six thousand copies which was actually a lot right and that came out on the 19th of december 1843 that entire print run had sold out by Christmas Eve. It was on its third print run oh. by New Year's Eve. Now, in a time when the vast majority of people were illiterate in the country and when most people could not afford to buy a book, that was why Dickens's novels were so popular because they were serialized in monthly or weekly parts in magazines, which were much more within the kind of capabilities of people being able to afford. Um, a book was a luxury item. You know, we're so lucky today. We live in an era when you can just, most people can afford to buy books. And yeah. then they were very much a luxury item. So to have 6,000 copies sell out within less than a week is incredible. And it's never been out of print since it came out on the 19th of December, 1843. But what's less well known is that each of his successive Christmas books would outsell the previous one. So The Haunted Man, for example, his last Christmas book, that sold 18,000 copies on its first day of publication. So every year, the new Christmas book would continue to be a blockbuster. And he never looked back. After. There was a child who was heard to say when she heard about Dickens's death on the 9th of June, 1870. This was a little girl working in Covent Garden at the market. And she apparently said to somebody, if Charles Dickens is dead, does that mean Father Christmas is going to die as well? Aww. That is what a personification of Christmas he had become to everybody. In fact, his daughter, Katie, she became the artist Kate Perugini. I wrote her biography, quick book plug there. Um, <laughs> she was a brilliant artist, a fascinating woman, Katie. And she wrote to George Bernard Shaw, who was a great friend of hers uh, in the 1890s. And she said to him, if you could make the world understand that my father was not some kind of jovial, jocose old man who just walked around with a plum pudding under one arm, <laughs> you know, you'd be doing me a huge favour. She felt that that was all anybody ever saw him as. They never saw him as the real person, as the family man he'd been. Uh, they were kind of almost overlooking all his other works in favour of the fact that he was the personification of Christmas. And you still find Christmas cards today that have scenes from Dickens or Dickens himself on. Uh, people want their Christmases to be about Charles Dickens. It's quite amazing. I just, before we do go on, another thing, Charlie, do you remember we did the episode about copyright and the Victorians? Yeah. Mm. You would think that he would be like the equivalent of Bill Gates at this point. But oh, yeah. he actually got mercilessly screwed, didn't he? Well, he, there was no international copyright law. So this is something that he fought for his whole life. And yeah. although it wasn't, uh, what the, the law didn't change, or the law didn't come about rather, until sometime after Dickens' death, um, he's actually accredited with being the person behind the move for international copyright. So all of the works of his that were sold in America were pirated until the mid 1850s when a publisher called James Fields became his official US publisher. So some of the books that were sold, if people bought the ones 
by that were published by Fields, then Dickens would get royalties. But it was cheaper to buy pirated copies. And the problem, of course, with American authors like Washington Irving in the UK is they also didn't get royalties. That's the reason why Dickens went on his second tr trip back to America, try and make as much money as possible from his lecturing, because he was so fed up with all the money that he wasn't getting. It and, happens here though as well, doesn't it? Which is yeah. the one within two weeks, One of the, it's in the book, one, within two weeks of one of the Christmas stories coming out, it's been basically pillaged and twisted and someone else is making money off of it. And that's here. Constant pirated versions of his work on stage, even before he'd finished writing them. So when his works were being serialized, people would be putting things like Oliver Twist on stage and making up an ending because they didn't know what the ending was. Brilliant. Um, within within a couple of months of a Christmas Carol being published, there were at least three uh, pirated versions on the London stage. And oh. Dickens spent a lot of his time going around theatres trying to demand royalties as the author. Um, <laughs> he was constantly parodied and pirated uh, because he was his name was so big that if you if you took one of his works and completely bastardised it, it didn't matter. It just people would know that it was something akin to Pickwick or Twist and they would rush to see it. So yes, it was very, very hard to try and get the money that he was owed out of those kind of things. And his works were written in such a kind of um, actorly way because Dickens himself was a desperate actor. You know, he wanted to be an actor originally, never planned on being a novelist. He wanted to be another Shakespeare. He wanted to write plays, perform them himself, um, travel around the country and hopefully all around the world. So when he wrote his books and he wrote dialogue, he would actually act it out in front of the mirror to see if it worked right. And therefore, they would, you would find that, um, you know, when people went to adapt them for the stage, they were incredibly easy to adapt. His characters are just a gift for actors. They really, really are you know, the, the people he created. Um, he doesn't get to stop working, clearly, because he's not making any money and he's having to go around and tell off theatre troops. So he keeps writing Christmas books. Tell us about the chimes. People might not have heard of the chimes as much as A Christmas Carol. The Chimes was published in 1844 and he wrote The Chimes while he was living in Italy. So he actually came back from Italy to England to have a business meeting just before Christmas when the book was published. And he did a reading to his friends and then he popped back to Italy and managed to get there on Christmas Eve in time to have Christmas with his family at their palazzo just outside Genoa. Um, the Chimes is actually a goblin story and it's set in the new year. And what's really interesting to me about this one is that in it, Dickens is furious with the media, the media that sensationalise and write nasty things about the working classes and the poor. And the main character is a man called Toby Vec, who's best known by his nickname of Trotty Vec. And he has become so completely despondent by everything that he reads that he has come to the conclusion that he and his daughter, he's a widow, which, so he's a widower, and he believes that he and his daughter just shouldn't be alive really, that they're just not important enough. And that when she's talking about getting married to her fiance, he thinks, well, people like us shouldn't be marrying and having children because we're useless. Then the newspapers never stop telling us we're so awful and useless and we're a scourge on the earth because we're poor. And Dickens really wanted his readers to realize how vile his fellow journalists could be when it came to writing about the poor. No change in 2021. The newspapers still write horrendous things about the poor, about refugees, about people who are most in need of help. And this was what Dickens was aiming at with his readers that year. And just as with Ebenezer Scrooge, Trotty Vec has a conversion. He is actually um, kind of taken up by some goblins who live in the bells of the church tower that uh, he goes up to the top of. And they persuade him that he's died and they show him what's happening in his daughter's life after his death and because he's not there to help her. And then, of course, it's all a fiction. It's a bit like the, the Christmas spirits taking Scrooge around. And then he comes to and it's New Year's Day and he goes to his daughter's wedding and everything's happy. And, you know, he he starts to, to realise that he shouldn't listen to what the media says, that he has just as much right as does his daughter to live and be happy as the rich people who appear in the novel. So another one that, that people might not have heard of is The Cricket on the Hearth. That's 1845. Can you tell us a bit about this one? 
Yes, the cricket on the hearth is about a cricket that lives in a fireside in a happy family um, and actually can appear uh, when it's needed in the form of a fairy. So again, we have good and bad characters. We have the, the good Peary Bingle family. What a great name, the Peary <laughs> Bingles. And their friend, Caleb Plummer, who's a very poor toy maker, and his blind daughter. And Caleb weaves for his daughter this wonderful fable of what their home is like. Um, he tells her how glamorous it is and gorgeous and, and how much how much they have and really they're living in desperate circumstances and he builds this world of imagination that she believes in but unfortunately he also tells her that his employer is a really nice man and she has started to believe that and to fall in love with this man which is not good because he's a pretty horrible human being however she is in love with him and she has decided that she is going to uh, you know she, she wants to marry him and then when she discovers that he's marrying somebody else she's very very upset well the Somebody else that he's marrying is a young woman called May, who was engaged to the, the blind girl Bertha's brother, who has disappeared and everybody believes is dead. He's a sailor and he hasn't come home. However, um, Mr. Tackleton, the, the, the mean toy merchant, is marrying May, who's you know Edward's left fiance, who, who believes that her lover is dead. And it all becomes a kind of classic, uh, you know, romance story where Edward has come back from sea and he, he is alive, but then he hears that his fiance is going to get married. So he disguises himself because he doesn't want to ruin her chance of happiness. And, and her best friend, who is Dot Peerybingle, she recognizes him and she helps him to, uh, to come back into society. And at the end, Tackleton, the toy maker who hates, sorry, at the end, Tackleton, the toy merchant who hates toys and is horrible and mean and says to John Peary Bingle, you should kill that cricket on your hearth. I always kill mine and tries to, to really mess things up by telling John that his wife is having an affair, which she isn't. Um, all of these things are resolved and the mean toy merchant somehow through the power of the cricket and the fairy that the cricket becomes, becomes a good man. And the couple who are young and in love get married and uh, he actually accepts the situation and even gives them all the food from the wedding so that everybody has enough to eat. So it's a, a very kind of sweet story, uh, a very Victorian story. But none of his later stories, except for perhaps The Haunted Man, have that same passion with which he wrote A Christmas Carol. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's perhaps why A Christmas Carol is the most memorable. The others are very much written because the Victorians wanted another Christmas story. And um, the Christmas Carol was written with such fervor from the heart. Yeah, it just so the last of the Christmas books is the Haunted Man and the Ghost Bargain, isn't it? Yes. So because he, like you say, I remember reading your book. Um, it was it was the Battle for Life, the one that we're not really dwelling on 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 this interview because we're trying to cram his whole life in. Um, that was the one where it was just a dirge for him to write wasn't it so what about the haunted man and the ghost bargain is that like his last hurrah and he's quite happy with it or is he literally just going through the motions at this point well yes yeah, the, the battle of life was the one that he really struggled with and it was a mm. battle he suffered from writer's block and he found it really hard and then he took the following year 1847 off from writing a christmas story perhaps partly because it was so difficult and with the haunted man in 1848 this is a story, another supernatural story that had come to him a couple of years earlier while living in Switzerland, which is where he was trying to write The Battle of Life, but had such terrible writer's block. But he had this idea for a supernatural haunting story. And he started to write it in 1848. And the thing that I find really incredible about it is that it's so much of life imitating art or art imitating life, I should say, because he wrote about the main character, a chemistry professor at a university, uh, Mr. Redlaw, and he is sunk down in depression over grief for the loss of his beloved sister. Now, Charles Dickens's own sister had died that year. Um, Fanny, his older sister, the one he was so close to, who had inspired little Fan, Scrooge's younger sister in A Christmas Carol, and whose disabled son, Harry, had inspired Tiny Tim in A Christmas Carol. But both Fanny and young Harry were desperately ill, and both would actually die within a few months of each other. And Fanny died on the 2nd of September, 1848, when Dickens was working on The Haunted Man. So the misery, the desperate misery that Mr. Redlaw feels about the loss of his sister was what was happening in Charles Dickens's own life at the time. And it's this incredible book that deals with depression, um, as, uh, it deals with addiction, it deals with this desperate need to lose 
the unhappy memories, a bit like the idea of taking antidepressants today, because what happens when he loses his heartbreaking memories is he loses all emotion and he becomes unable to care about the things he'd cared about before. And then, which is extraordinary reading it, as I have been rereading it during the pandemic, um, is this fear of infecting those he cares about with what the phantom who's visited him is called a gift and which he comes to realize is a curse. So it's the most extraordinary modern novel, really, when you read it, the themes are quite incredible. And I think that took a huge amount out of him. He just felt that he couldn't keep doing this every year because he wasn't able to continue with his other work. He was trying to work on Dombey and Son um, when he was writing The Battle of Life. And that's why he had to take the following year off. He wanted to be able to work on other novels. But I think The Haunted Man is a really amazing final Christmas novella because it's just such an amazing story. So is, is this why... We, why he stops writing Christmas novels in 1848, just when they're getting really popular. And do we get anything more Christmassy after that? Did he just need a little bit of a break? Or He started he writing there? short stories and every year there would be short stories and sometimes they'd be co-written. So for example, A House to Let, which was co-written with several other writers and then No Thoroughfare, which is a really kind of rollicking, long Christmas story co-written with Wilkie Collins, which was a melodrama in the 1860s. And it was, it was all really exciting and kind of, you know, people going across Switzerland being pursued by possible murderers. And, you know, it was, it was a really exciting read. And and so he would come up with these ideas. I think he felt rather than having to write the novella, the short story was the way forward. It would enable him to work on his other books. And it also meant that, that every Christmas he could write something um, that was easy to do. And he could then encourage other writers to do the same. He was always very good at wanting to encourage up and coming writers. He was very good at encouraging female writers. And he paid people very good wages. So people always wanted to work for his magazines because he always paid much better than other magazines. That's not to say he was egalitarian. If you were his best friend, like Wilkie Collins, you tended to get more than someone else, but he really paid people good wages and he would write, for example, Elizabeth Gaskill. He wrote to her when she wrote Mary Barton, which was published anonymously because it was by a woman. And he contacted her when he found out who she was. And when she was being told to give up writing because she was the wife of a clergyman and she was writing about things like suicide and adultery and uh, all these kind of terrible things that a woman shouldn't be thinking about, Dickens encouraged her to keep writing and said, you as a minister's wife are at the forefront. People tell you things. They come to you with their woes. This is real life. People have to know what desperate circumstances these people are living in. And he always encouraged her to, to work on short stories for his magazines as well. He, um, it was merciless as well, wasn't he, at trying to get charities like the Literary Fund and that to sponsor people who were like destitute writers? Yes, the Royal Theatrical Fund, the Royal Literary Fund, he would be constantly writing, recommending people, uh, writing to the Royal Household to recommend people for, for royal pensions. Um, he was, and also when one of his friends died, he would constantly just take on the kind of financial responsibility for their, their spouse or their children if they needed it. So he had the most incredible amount of dependence. Um, he was constantly just paying the rent for a family because the father had died. Um, and he would also obviously try and get the official bodies to give them money so that he didn't need to keep this responsibility. But he never, ever wanted children to go through what he'd gone through. So without telling the world I was a poor child. He spent his whole time trying to bring about change. He was also one of the people um, who was there at the very beginning of the founding of Great Ormond Street Hospital. Uh, the doctors approached him and said, we need somebody to educate people as to why hospitals are a good place and why we need a hospital that's entirely about children's medical care, because there weren't any hospitals aimed at children. And uh, he wrote articles and he did fundraising and when they got too big and thought they were going to have to close down because they couldn't cope with all the children coming through the door, he held a massive fundraising dinner and raised £3,000 in 1858, which enabled them to buy the building next door and expand the hospital. So you know, he was really at the forefront of big commercial charities and individual charities. 
So it's, it's good to talk about this because people have recently, all they've wanted to talk about is the end of the marriage and, you know, and the and wall how, down the middle of the bedroom. Yeah, we did, we did exactly. some bashing for that as well. Yeah. So we're addressing the balance. We are. That is <laughs> and, and actually, creepy behaviour. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's so difficult to judge a Victorian marriage by present day standards. And that's not to say he didn't act like a pig. I feel desperately sorry for my great, great, great grandmother. But, you know, the law allowed him to behave. The law yeah. allowed all men to behave in this way. And yeah. actually, his good work was really phenomenal. And um, the, the things that he did that were way ahead of his time in terms of social work and charity work are, are quite amazing. And the Victorian age was full of these philanthropists because it had to be. There was no social security. You couldn't go on benefits. You couldn't claim the dole. You know, you, you couldn't get you know, you, you couldn't get your food bills paid, your your heating bills paid. You starved, you froze. Um, you went on the streets. That was just what people had to do. So there are so many amazing people, and Dickens was friends with many of them, who were trying desperately to make a more equal society. In terms of being his great 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 granddaughter, what does that mean to you at Christmas? Well, I've always loved Christmas. So whether that's having Dickens in my blood, I don't know. I am a massive Christmas fan. And this year, 2021, as with so many people, I just thought I've got to decorate really early because it's been such a terrible couple of years. And that just brings me great joy. Looking at a decorated Christmas tree brings me real happiness. I also love the fact that I'm uh, able to do lots of kind of Christmassy events. And the reason I wrote the book Dickens and Christmas is that was the book I wanted to read. And it hadn't been written yet. And I was amazed. There was lots of books out there about A Christmas Carol, but there was nothing about all of Dickens's Christmas writing, about his own family Christmases. And it was so much fun researching it and discovering how much Christmas means to people and how much Dickens to this day remains a part of people's Christmases. I, I get invited to a lot of Christmas festivals associated with Dickens, which I love. And it is, is amazing to me how many people all around the world love a Christmas carol and a Christmas carol as well really importantly transcends religion so people don't just want to read it if they're kind of in the Christian tradition people love it for its message all over the world and I think that that is really an important legacy. What an inheritance as well to inherit not only the the literary side of it but also to be part of this family that you know, of the man who created Christmas as as we know it what do you think Dickens wider legacy as far as Christmas is concerned is I think he it's really hard to separate um, the the European and British Christmas and American Christmas to separate that from Dickens it's astonishing and everywhere that's kind of in the English speaking world particularly where um, you know, the Dickens kind of story spread but everywhere I mean Dickens was translated into so many languages I've had people from Korea from China from Cuba from Slovenia all come and tell me how much Dickens has formed part of their Christmas traditions even in countries that don't celebrate Christmas they will have a love of Dickens and read his works um, and when it comes to the way, way we look at how Christmas is perceived, for example, the white Christmas. Now, most Christmas cards, I was amazed when I was living in Australia, even in Australia and New Zealand, <laughs> um, Christmas cards have snow on them because that's what people think of as Christmas. Now, that really is affected by the fact that Dickens wrote consistently about snow at Christmas time, even though it wasn't as common as you might think. But apparently in the first eight years of Dickens's life, there were six white Christmases. It was a particularly cold period of time and it's like all of us we look back at our childhood summers christmases whatever and we remember them as being you know massively hot summers wonderful christmases whether they were or not and so it seems that dickens's early childhood really affected that and that continues to affect people today lucinda thank you so much for coming on to spend christmas morning with us sort of um <clears throat> and to tell everybody the story of Charles Dickens and Christmas and everything that he did to sort of shape the way that we're... I mean, he's not responsible for Slade and Wham. I won't hold that against him. No, he's definitely not responsible for Slade Awful song, but you hear the first three bars when you walk into a shop and think, oh, no. Or you're stuck <laughs> in the queue, worse. You're stuck in the queue and you hear the opening bars of by Carey and you're just like, I need to get out of here. That's an interesting thought. Do you think if Dickens had been alive in the 80s, he'd have been doing cheesy Christmas songs that we'd all be having to sing forever more. That's I, I hope so. Yes, I hope he'd have been like Slade. 
Yeah, because that would have been the way of being commercial now, wouldn't it? I mean, to get a pop song straight to number one with the word Christmas in the title. So maybe A Christmas Carol would never have been. He'd have just written, you know, his version of Merry Christmas, everybody. But can you imagine as well, like having to write a Christmas number one every year? <laughs> lad, lad baby seemed to be doing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He'd have got the best line in Band-Aid, wouldn't he? He'd have got like the he would have done. But tonight, Big thank God, it's them instead of you. He'd have got Yeah, that. absolutely. Dickens would have probably rewritten the whole thing and then insisted he sang it as well. Though I don't know if he could actually sing. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't stop. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on and, and Merry Christmas to all of you. Merry Christmas. God bless us, everyone. <laughs> Someone had to say it. I know. <laughs> when our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.